Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It is a blessing to be able to share, like Ben was praying, God's word with you. I pray that we'll see God's word together this morning. Uh, but man, part of me just wants to keep worshiping. So Ben, if you just want to come back up and keep worshiping, I can sit down. This is no problem. But that's, oh man, sorry. I'm just, I'm somewhere else right now and it's a good place. But this morning, if you don't have a Bible, please get one, open the app on your phone, grab one out of there. But we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 this morning, Ruth chapter 3. And the title of the message is Sit Still. And like I said to the first service, that's not my command to you for the rest of the message to sit still. Uh, I know we've got plenty of caffeine in the house, so it might be a little bit hard. But I think that that's the word for us this morning is sit still until you know how it turns out. Sit still until you know how it turns out. Like I told first service, I'm not that, cl- I'm not that clever. That's just the, one of the last verses. <laughs> and I think it speaks for what we're going to hear today. Uh, but I talked through Genesis a few years back, and it was amazing. And I was talking with someone after service last time about it as well. And we were just talking about how God is with us. And I think that that's what God wants to show us anytime we come to the Scriptures. That when we go through Genesis, we see real people with real problems who needed a real God to take care of them. And he did, despite them. Despite their best efforts at failure, despite their doubting, despite everything else, God showed up. Uh, in fact, as uh, Christmas is coming, uh, you know, uh, someone said the S word snow and the B word blizzard this morning. I said, no, not yet. But as Christmas is coming, remember, what was the name given for Jesus? It was Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we come to the Bible, it's good to know the scriptures. It's good to learn facts. It's good to know the Hebrew and Greek if you want to get real nerdy. But what does God care about most when we come to the scriptures? What's that we see Jesus. And so as we come to Ruth this morning, as we come to any scripture, as hard as it may believe, even if you're going through Leviticus and they're talking about how many doves next you have to break in the old Levitical system, I hope that we can find God in it because that's the point of coming to him in it. Like his uh, half-brother James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you because that's what God wants. As we draw near to him, he's not going to hide himself from us. If God wanted to hide himself He could easily do it, but he doesn't. He wants to be revealed, and he reveals himself through his word and through his son, Jesus. But I've been reading through Judges personally, and God is still with the Jews, even though they keep leaving him. They keep going after the nations around them. God sends a judge to rescue them. They think, oh, that's cool. God rescued us, and then they seem to forget and go right back to their old ways, and their enemies come in, and then God sends someone else to rescue them. He even sends flawed people like Samson. Samson was strong (laughs) in stature, But he wasn't very strong spiritually, as we know, but God used him. And as we go chronologically, I I checked the chronological Bible to make sure it was right, but Ruth comes chronologically after Judges, which comes before the time of the kings. And I believe that God is trying to uh, step aside a little bit, kind of like he did with the woman in Samaria to go to the well. He steps aside a little bit to show us Ruth to bring us into the time and the story of the king to come before the age of the kings, as we know about the kings of Israel. He wanted us to know about the line of David, and he ultimately he wants us to know about the line of Jesus, who come through Ruth and come through Boaz. And today we're going to look more at Ruth, and next week more at Boaz. But this is God's point, God's point that he wants us to go and know the redemption story when we come here. He doesn't want us to miss that. He's not just sending people to rescue Israel. He's not just going to send a king to rule over them, but eventually he's going to send his son to redeem them and buy them back. And that's what we're going to see in the story today. But Ruth, if you remember what Pastor Caleb had gone through the first couple chapters, that she had made her mother-in-law Naomi's people 
her people. She said, I want your people to be mine. I'm from Moab, but I want the Jews to be my people. I want the God of the Jews to be my God. And if you remember back in Joshua, a lady named Rahab who was on the wall and the spies came in and she hid the spies and she had heard things about the Israelites and she too feared the God of Israel even though she was not an Israelite and God rescued her. And well, guess who her son is? It's Boaz. Matthew tells us it's Boaz. So it's an interesting picture to think about here that God is going to bring about the kingly line. God is going to bring ultimately the messianic line of Jesus through two people who weren't even Jews totally. Through someone from Jericho who was by all accounts, probably a prostitute, and from this lady of Moab, from a nation that served other gods. But the point was, they knew the living God, and they wanted to be a part of the living God's plan. But when Naomi came back, she said she was Mara, she was bitter, that she was coming back empty, if you remember with Pastor Caleb. But I believe that God was bringing her back to bring about the kingly line. That if she didn't come back with Ruth, Ruth and Boaz would have met. And sure, God could have done it through somebody else, but God wanted to do it through her. But Naomi didn't know that at the time. Naomi just knew that her life was messed up. She had to go back. None of her plans worked out. Her family had died. Her sons had died. And now she's coming back empty-handed. And I think that that speaks to us, that God will empty us completely before he uses us greatly. That didn't, Naomi had no idea what was going to happen a thousand years down the line. Naomi didn't know what God was doing. But God knew what God was doing, and God knew that he was going to use her to bring about the Messiah. My kids and I were always on YouTube watching videos on Japan. We want to go there one day. I think it would be awesome. Um, I'm not a big fan of fish, so I don't know how that would work out for me. But I can kind of use chopsticks, so I'm getting there. But we see all the different cultures and the things that go on. We love to learn about it. And I think about when God brought us to Montana over five years ago, we wanted to be Montanans. We didn't want to bring the East Coast with us. God was bringing us off the East Coast, and we were thankful to leave it behind. I'm not thankful to leave the pizza behind, but everything else can stay on the East Coast. And I had this thought, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're also, thank you for being here and still being America. I'm glad to move to America. And I had this thought, it was even before uh, uh, Pastor Cave asked me to, to share um, but I had this thought, and I have these weird thoughts sometimes, just ask my wife in the back. Uh, but I was thinking about when one becomes a citizen of another nation. Did anyone else sit on the couch and just think about that? No, I'm the only one? Okay. All right. Well, when one goes to another nation, generally you're supposed to go and adopt their customs and their morals and make them your own. Not to go, if I go to Japan, I'm not to go to Japan and make it America. I'm going to Japan, maybe, is that prophesying, Lord? I'm going to Japan one day to experience Japan. Not to bring McDonald's with me, right? Even though I think it's already there. But in our day and age, it seems to be the opposite. We try and inject our own customs into the society or the place we move, right? The Californians moving to Idaho or moving to Texas. They're bringing California with them, but they're leaving California because it's California, right? There's something wrong there. But for a heavenly society, we're to adapt to heaven's customs. We're to adapt to heaven's morals and heaven's ways of life as believers. We're not to inject our own ways of life into the godly way of life. We're not to make suppositions onto what heaven is supposed to be like in our image. We're, God made us in his image, not him in ours, right? And so the Bible encourages us to become the heavenly man or woman, that we are pilgrims, we are sojourners in this world. We're just passing through. Just like I like to say, every time you go down past a rest stop, you wouldn't like want to move there. You don't ask, 
How much is the property worth? Can I, how many bedrooms are at the rest stop? You're passing through. That should be the same way as we pass through our life here. We're not bringing anything with us to heaven other than hopefully those we love and we get to share the gospel with. But that includes our customs. Instead, because we're heavenly citizens as believers, we're to bring heaven's customs and morals here to the kingdom on earth. And when Pastor Caleb asked me to fill in for him and cover this next portion of Ruth, we had been talking about different areas that maybe I could do. And he said, no, why don't you do Ruth? And I said, are you sure? Because you're really giving me the gold with this chapter and the next chapter. And I'm really blessed to be able to be here and share it with you guys this morning. I've been going through the past couple weeks and just, oh, I just love it. So if you get nothing out of it, I'm sorry, but I think it's awesome. And, and I pray that, uh, that you would this morning. So why don't we pray together and we'll dive into God's word. So God, this morning, we thank you so much for your grace like was saying, and your mercy, God, that you are for us, you're not against us. God, your thoughts are continually good for us. God, that, uh, Lord, you don't condone the, the, the sin that we do, and if we don't know you, God, we're lost without you. But God, you're always reaching out to us. You always give us uh, a chance to repent, a chance to be redeemed. And God, I pray that this morning, whatever's going on in all of our lives, God, the things that are bothering us, the things that are holding us back, God, would you take them? Would we give them to you and experience, God, just the freedom that's in your son Jesus because of his blood? God, we also pray for Pastor Caleb and Courtney as they're in South Africa. Give them a good time. May they see some awesome animals, eat some great food, and come back safe. Bless their kids as well. And uh, we just ask for your grace on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at Ruth chapter 3, and uh, we'll take it in a few chunks. The first chunk will be, Verses 1 through 7. Now I'm going to read through the New King James, so it might be a little bit different than yours, but hopefully we can follow along together. And it says, Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you are with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is out winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment, go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And Ruth said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And we'll stop there. She says, Naomi says to Ruth, should I not seek security for you? And there's a little note in mind about the translation. And when you look it up, it actually means rest. Shall I not seek rest for you? And if we think about Ruth... She was poor. She probably didn't always know where her next meal came from. She had to go behind the workers and glean with the other girls, right, to pick up. And Pastor Caleb shared about how that's such a good way to take care of the poor. Um, but I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you don't know how you're going to pay that next bill. Or inflation's hitting, and then everyone keeps calling, and every bill keeps going up. Or where your next meal might come from. I've been in some tough places in life. I can't say I've been in the toughest of places. But It's stressful. And it's always on your mind. You can't escape it. You know there's only $4 in the checking account and you don't get paid till next week. What are you going to do? That's a hard way to live. And God doesn't want us to be under that stress. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants you to be rich. In fact, we may never be rich. But you know what? God wants you to be at rest. You may not be rich, but God wants you to be at rest. And that's what Naomi wants 
for Ruth. As Naomi's getting older, that's all she wants for her. Naomi can't do much for her, but she wants to help her get to a place that's better for her. And while Naomi likes to play matchmaker, if you guys have seen Fiddler on the Roof and that song, was it matchmaker, matchmaker, right? I won't sing it for you. My kids might be able to sing it for you. But that's kind of what she's doing here. And I remember before dating my wife, Ashley, in the back, I'd be uh, in the sound booth or doing something, and the worship pastor, would, we'd be doing something together. He'd be like, hey, I know someone who likes you. And I'd be like, Jim, that's enough. We've got stuff to do. Can we go to He's like, don't you want to ask her out? I'm like, Jim, come on. Can we just get services going to start, right? Like, he was doing a little matchmaker. I'm not giving him any credit at all for <laughs> what transpired, but we're happily married for many years and have five kids. Um, I'm not going to say how many years because I'm going to mess it up under pressure. <laughs> Whatever 2012 was. But the commentary from David Guzik, and it's a great commentary. If you can, go on Blue Letter Bible and look it up. He's got some great commentary. Uh, he says, talks about the kinsman redeemer as this, that he had specifically a defined role in Israel's family life. That the Goel had these responsibilities. He was to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. So if his family member was a slave, he had the duty to buy them back in Leviticus. He was responsible to be the avenger of blood, as seen in Numbers uh, 35. So if you had accidentally killed somebody, you know, you're out in the field, the tractor rolls over and you run somebody over, you had a sanctuary city you could run to so that the family couldn't kill you, right? So the kinsman redeemer was to, to take care of that. He was to buy back family land that had been forfeited, maybe for a debt or something else in Leviticus 25. He was also to carry on the family name. If you remember, the Sadducees went to Jesus, and they gave him the strange story about this woman who had a husband, and the husband died, she married somebody else, and he died, she married somebody else, and he died. Well, was she killing them? I don't know. <laughs> but the husbands keep dying, and they ask, and they don't even believe in the afterlife. And they're saying, Jesus, well, in heaven, in paradise, whose, husband will she, or whose wife will she be? And he goes, guys, you're missing the whole point of that story, right? That people don't get married in heaven. There's no marriage there, right? But that's where they get it from, that there's this cultural thing that, hey, my brother died. He doesn't have a son. I'm to take his wife and give them a son that they're, I'm so glad this doesn't still happen, but to carry on the family name, right? That that was the role back then, because you're an agrarian society, right? You need kids. Your family needs to go on. There's all sorts of things that go with that. But that was a responsibility. That this person was to safeguard the persons, the property, and the posterity of the family. It was a big deal to be the Goel. It was a big deal to be the Redeemer, to buy back what was lost, what was stolen, what was forfeited. And that's the power of the kinsman Redeemer, to buy back what was lost. Does that not make you think of Jesus already without actively looking for him? Does it not stir your heart and think about our Lord? Because didn't he buy us out of slavery? What were we slaves to before we knew him? What were we stuck in? What blood had we spilled? Or what blood was spilled against us that needed to be avenged? What kingdom of God was lost in us that he needed to restore? Or what property and life have we lost, right? That he restores the years that the locusts have eaten, the Bible says. So I hope we don't miss that. That as we see Ruth and Boaz, that we see that Jesus wants to buy the things back in our life that are really worthless, right? The things that we've ruined, the things that we've destroyed, the relationships that are over or hurting or married and it's messed up. God can buy that back and he wants to buy that back and he paid a ridiculous price for it. You think the housing market's bad right now. Look at how much Jesus paid for to buy the things back in our life, to take what was worthless and make them eternally worthy and worthful of this word. But Naomi... You know, I just picture a little old Naomi going over to Ruth. She says, oh, dear, wash and anoint yourself. Put on your best. Put on your best. It sounds like a wedding or a date. 
I was in, oh man, I was back east this week, and I'm so glad to be back home. But I, I was out to dinner with my boss, and we saw this young people that looked like they were out dating on a first date or on a date. I'm like, I'm so glad that time of my life is over, especially being unsaved and dating. I'm glad that it's all over, and I'm just old and married and on the couch. I don't have anything to worry about, right? I don't have to think about that. What an awful time. What an awful thing, right? God's got a better plan than that, people. That's the, that's the worldly system. But man, what was, what was Ruth's best, though? Remember, she was a Moabitess. She came in. She gleaned in the field. She didn't have two pennies to rub together. What was her best like? Was it the prettiest? Would it even impress Boaz? Well, I'm sure Boaz has probably seen better. Would it be nice? Well, it was the nicest she had. And I think as a society, you know, I don't dress that nice, but as a society, anyone who's been to the Walmart or the airport can tell we don't dress that nice as a society anymore. We don't care what we look like. And we've all been there, no shame. (laughs) But I don't believe it was necessarily about her appearance, right? I believe just based on some of the other things that go on here, I know it helps, right? It's always nice. It's always pleasant, you know, with a a pleasant-looking lady. But I think it was more about her posture. It was more about one of respect coming to him, that she didn't show up in Crocs to go, no no offense, anyone likes Crocs, but she didn't show up in Crocs to ask for this guy to be her redeemer. That this was a big deal, and she took it seriously, and she respected him for who he was in that. And uh, I won't mention the Senate dress code any more than just mentioning it right there. But Boaz was her family, but again, it was kind of her family. She was her husband, but her husband died. She had no right, and I believe in some sense she was taking a big risk when she was already allowed to glean in the field. What if he said no? What if he said get out of here? I can't believe you asked me for that. She could have lost everything, but she went in faith. She trusted Naomi, and I believe she trusted God to go do this, that this was the right thing for her to do. She could have played it safe, but really what was she losing? A life of struggle? A life of loneliness? A life of fear? There might have been another field she could have gleaned from. I like Naomi's advice. She says, don't make yourself known until he's finished eating and drinking. Does anyone get hangry in here? Does anyone really want to be asked about paying a bill or a check or the, where's the credit card when you just want to eat lunch? No, you don't want to be bothered by those things until afterwards. So she's like, timing is everything. And timing is everything in life, especially for big requests. And that's why God will give us three answers sometimes. He'll say yes, no, or wait, right? Because timing is everything. She says, don't interrupt the party. Wait until his belly full and he's relaxed. You'll probably have a better chance of yes. And so she goes softly. I like how the scripture says she goes softly. She's not a brash woman. Uh, She's a respectful woman. She goes, she uncovers his feet, and she lies down at his feet. I'm sure his feet were pretty stinky from working out in the field all day. And yet this is where she goes, and she puts her head. And as much as people in the world might, or even some Scholars might like to say that this is something improper or even something sexual. I believe that this is a sign of submission, especially in their day and age and their culture. And our culture doesn't seem to understand submission. It doesn't like submission. Maybe it does understand it. But I think also in part because we've corrupted the holiness of it, the goodness of it, the safety and security provided by it. I don't don't just mean Ruth to Boaz, I mean submission in all sense, to society, to your boss, to rule of law, things of these things. You know, Ephesians 5.22, I won't go into it because I'd like to remain friends with all of you today, uh, but it says, wives submit to husbands as unto the Lord. 
But that's not where it ends. It says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved and gave himself for her. So just as much as the wife submits to the husband, the husband has to, well, what did Jesus do for the church? Oh, yeah, he died on the cross. I love you, babe, but I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully that time comes. But it's a two-way street, love and respect, submission and salvation. The wife lays down her will in some ways, and the man lays down his life in other ways. And I believe it's projecting to say that it's anything other than that. And our world loves to project. I mean, it's another election season. Is it ever not election season? It seems like there's always something going on. But they love to project and say, that side does this while they are doing that very thing. That's projection. And the Bible is clear when there's failure. That's another reason why I believe. Because the Bible doesn't mince words, right? David messes up. Saul messes up. Everybody else kind of makes mistakes. Peter was doing this. And the Bible's clear when there's failure. So the Bible's going to be clear when it was here. And in fact, if you read ahead to chapter 4, you see when that marital relationship actually takes place. The Bible doesn't gloss over these things. And I think, too, because Boaz is a picture of Jesus, he's not a perfect guy. He's not, you know, there's all sorts of things with him, right, that he's just a person like the rest of us. But he does the right thing here. And I think that's what the Bible wants us to see, is the aspect of him that that God is using to show his son Jesus in him. And Boaz had no idea. Boaz was out, you know, doing the harvest and having dinner and went to bed and wakes up and roosts at his feet. He had no idea that God was using this situation. He had no idea what God would do. He had no idea that the Messiah would come through him. It's probably the last thing on his mind. He was just doing what he knew to be the right thing to do and living his life. But I want you to know, and I know that God wants you to know, that God can and will redeem your past. He will redeem your relationships and even your moral failings. In the church, a lot of times, we think we have to be perfect, right? We do need to strive uh, to follow God and to put aside the old ways. And when we sin, we need to repent and go on. But know that Depending on the the situation, there's consequence for sure. But God can redeem your life. Your life's not over. The Bible says that the righteous man falls seven times, but then he gets up. And he gets up because he knows that he has a redeemer. If it wasn't for that, if it was based on our works, what's the point? We've all failed. The Bible says you've broken one commandment, you've broken them all. But again, this is about the story of redemption, of buying back. And this past failure in any of our lives, doesn't prevent present purity. That when the enemy loves to come to you and I and love to say, oh, you failed already. What's the point of going on? Don't even bother. Just stay in it. Oh, it's, you know, that's a lie. If you failed, ask God to forgive you. Ask him for the strength to move on and press forward, like Paul says, forgetting the things behind and pushing forward. But where else do we see the feet being at the feet, right? Being at the feet of something. Well, in Jesus... We see he takes a servant's role and he washes his disciples' feet in John 13, 4 through 20. His authority, love, and kingship is shown in service. That Jesus washes their dirty feet. Mary puts expensive perfume, the oil of spikenard, I think it is, on Jesus' feet. And he says, she's doing this for my burial. She didn't have a lot of money. This thing cost years worth of wages and she dumped it on Jesus' feet. In John 12, 3, he says, Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. 
And the quality of a life that's laid down, that's in submission to God, is unmistakable and evident to all who are around it. It has an odor to it. It has a smell to it. The Bible says in the New Testament, to those who are being saved, our lives as a Christian are the odor of salvation, are the smell of heaven. But to those who are dying, those who are dead in sin, it smells to them of death because they smell their own death because they're not saved. Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet. Remember, it was kind of like Thanksgiving. Martha's in the kitchen working everything up in Luke 10. And it happened as they entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has let me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And Martha was like, I want to make Jesus some biscuits. We're going to have roast lamb. We're going to have the greatest feast because the king's in my house. And Jesus is out in the living room. He doesn't care if he has mac and cheese and chicken nuggies. They want to spend time and have time with God and share the things of God. And, God, and he's like, we can eat dinner later. Let's do the most important thing now. And I'm not going to make Mary get up to go serve in the kitchen. Mary's resting. You should rest too, Martha. And people like to project infidelity on Mary and Jesus as well. That's not true. Boaz could have anyone, I think, because he had everything to give, but he was available. Ruth had only herself, her loyalty, her heart to give. And what did she do? She laid it all down. She made herself vulnerable at the feet of this man to be her redeemer. Let's go on to verse 8 through 13. It says, Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was laying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for, all that, uh, for I will do all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. He says, stay this night, and in the morning it shall be, that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. It says that Boaz was startled at midnight. I would be too. I just worked hard all day. I passed out after a big meal. I wake up and there's a woman at my feet and my feet are cold because she pulled a blanket off of them. That's a big deal. The kids were outside camping a couple weeks ago the last relatively warm night and it was chilly. But do you remember Adam in the garden? What did God do before he brought Eve? He knocked Adam out and put him into deep sleep. He invented anesthesia, did a little surgery, took Adam's rib out and made Eve. And then when Adam wakes up from surgery, he goes, whoa, man, woman, dad joke, anyone? And he goes on this awkward speech like we all do when we see the love and the beauty of our life. Oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? But he had to go to sleep first. That's the same thing that happened here. And he asked, who are you? Because it was dark, right? It was dark. Who, who, who are you? What, you know, sleep in his eyes. Remember Leah and Jacob, that Laban tricked Jacob, and he marries this lady, and he wakes up the next day, and he goes, you're not Rachel, <laughs> you know, and he has to work seven more years. That's pretty rough. 
But I believe that this is the proper relationship model in the Bible, that you're busy serving God like Adam, like Boaz. You're not actively looking for a spouse. You've gone to sleep as far as it is for dating or looking. Um, not that you don't notice, but you quickly you know, go back to sleep. And then as you do that, God will bring someone alongside you, whether you're a girl or a boy. He brings the opposite alongside you. And then he'll wake you up to this person being the one for you. You're like, oh, you're right here. You're doing the same thing I am. We believe the same thing about God. We're going the same direction in life. Why don't we keep going the same direction in life? Now, if you're married, too late. You're married. Your spouse is your spouse. But guess what? No matter how good or bad it is, whatever reasons you got married or whatever the reasoning then, God can redeem it and make it just as perfect despite our failures. Now, there might be a little more, a little more sacrifice, a little more laying your life down. It might be a little bit harder to do to break your own will, but God can do it. Just ask my wife. God can do anything, right? But she replies her name, her position, and her mission. She says, I'm Ruth. Remember, Ruth means friendly. She says, I'm your maidservant. She says, I'm not here to be a gold digger. She says, I'm here to serve you and come alongside you. And she says, my mission, to come under your authority by the tradition. You're my family member. I'm coming here under the, my right and your responsibility that was given to us by God in tradition. And Boaz says to her, probably still getting the sleep out of his eyes, uh, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. And remember how the angel spoke to Mary, blessed are you, right? But this is a proper model of men and women in the church. 1 Timothy 5.2 says to treat older women as mothers, young and w- younger women as sisters with all purity. And he calls her daughter. Same thing for women, older men as fathers, younger men as brothers. You're not going to think anything weird or do anything funny business with your parent or your sibling. So that's a good way to stay safe in the church. But he says, you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. That Ruth was genuine. Ruth hadn't been flattering him and buttering up and, you're so handsome, Boaz, what a great guy, like Delilah and Samson, right? But she was a genuine lady. She came quietly, she came serving, she came um, humbly. And she wasn't in it just to get what she wanted. She was there out of faith and obedience. In fact, she had to be nudged to go there. And he says, you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. That Boaz was no spring chicken, as we'll see here in a minute. He might not have even been terribly attractive, um, but he was available, and she was interested. And spoiler, I told first service, if you don't want to hear about next week or the week after, maybe it's too much of my years in youth ministry coming out, but stick your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 la. But spoiler, if you read the Midrash, which I didn't, but I read commentary that brings it up. Uh, it's a Jewish commentary. It's not scripture. I wouldn't take it as scripture, but it's sort of a tradition. They say that Ruth was around 40, and Boaz was around 80. And I could see that because there's this concern about Ruth still being able to bear children and the timing running out on that around 40. Um, my mom had me when she was 39. I don't, I don't know how that... God bless her. Uh, Boaz could have been 80. You know, uh, at least if you look at the scriptures in chapter 4, they get married, and then uh, Obed is born. But who names Obed? Well, the neighbors do. And that's the father's job. So where was Obed? So he potentially died somewhere before Obed was born. They say, the Jew at the Midrash says, that he died the night of or the night after the wedding. I don't know that you have any proof about that. That sounds just like an old wives' tale to me. Um, but maybe. But I can remember when Ash would come and talk to me after service, and she genuinely asked how I was. And I wasn't looking for anyone to ask me how I was. But I remember when she asked me that, I just knew there was something genuine about her. 
Um, I knew that she was really wanting to know how I was, and she wasn't probing or trying. She probably didn't even remember. But that's not usually how the conversations went after service, and that's okay, right? Uh, I wasn't there looking to get my needs met. I was there to serve the Lord and serve the church. And conversations, yeah, sometimes would be about me. But I just knew something was genuine about her when she asked that, and it kind of was like a, just something that I kept note of going forward. And we don't have time, but read 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. I always get overzealous and like, let's just read more scripture, but time is short. But 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16 talks about who is really a widow and whose responsibility is the widow. And if a woman is young, she should get remarried. I have my friend, Pastor Tony, died a few years ago and his wife recently got married. And I think it's wonderful. They're so happy. It's a God thing. Their kids are grown. Um, it's still a little weird seeing them together because I just, I think of my friend. But that was right. She was still young enough to get married and has that need in her life, and God brought them together, and that's a good thing. She doesn't have to stay single after that unless she felt called to. But this is not a major issue in our society. There's rampant divorce. Either nobody wants to get married, or when they do get married, they don't want to have kids. And I get it. We've kind of led them down a path of bad examples and shown them what it shouldn't be like, so why wouldn't you want it when we haven't done it right? But old folks tend to get shipped off and ignored. And I get, you can't always take care of grandma. Sometimes the medical issues are just so hard that you do need help. I'm not, I'm not knocking any of that. But I think as a large part of society has really pushed off family, pushed off responsibility in family. And when something goes wrong in our family, it's our responsibility to do something about it in as much as it's possible and they're willing, right? And on top of that, it's the church's responsibility. And First Timothy talks about the church. Make sure you take care of your family, you don't, you know, that the church isn't burdened, that the church is left to take care of those who are truly widows indeed. But he says, I will do all that you request. That Boaz was down for this. She wasn't, yeah, that's another good thing about marriage. Ladies, if you're trying to get married, don't twist his arm into getting married. You know? If you're twisting it now, you're going to be twisting it forever. And that's not what anybody wants to live, right? But he's like, yes, I'll do all that you request. And more than that, he says, everyone knows you are a virtuous woman. Another one for homework, Proverbs 31, a virtuous woman, that they knew it. Even though she was poor and he was rich, they were in the same league spiritually, right? He was loaded. She had barley stains on her clothes, right? But they were right for each other spiritually, mentally, emotionally. They were both God-fearing and virtuous people. And that's the most important part of a relationship, that you're spiritually aligned uh, and equal in your pursuit of God. And then after that, you got to have a mental and emotional capacity because, believe it or not, looks fade. Uh, my looks were never there in the first place, so God bless my wife. But they fade, and so you need to have something to talk about. But then you still need that physical spark there as well. And those are all good, godly things. But 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 16 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion with light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial or demons? What part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that's a marriage where God dwells in your marriage and walks among it. And that's what my wife, at our wedding, we sang, be the center, because we want that. And we know that when things go wrong, it's because Jesus isn't at the center. And he has to go back to the center for it to work right. But Boaz says that there's a relative closer than I. And he was being honorable. Again, he was 80. Maybe this relative was younger, and he's thinking of Ruth as well. Like, this other guy's younger. You know, you're going to get more out of him than you're going to get out of me. And, of course, he was willing. I mean, what 80-year-old guy who's single and hasn't had a date in probably half a century, and a younger lady comes up to him and says, hey, you want to get married? Of course, he's going to, sure, why not? You know, that's the way it works. 
But he was going to do the right thing by Ruth, the right thing by the other person, and he wasn't going to take her or take things into his own hands. He was going to do things the right way and the honorable way. And that's the kind of guy you want to be with, ladies. He says the friend, I'm sorry, he says that there's a, a redeemer, a family member closer than I. And I think in a way, unknowingly, he's prophesying of Jesus. That, yeah, there's this other guy, but Jesus is the one who's really close, the one who can really redeem us. And he says, I'll perform the duty for you because he was willing, able, and ready to do the right thing. That Boaz was committed to cover Ruth. That taking on a marriage, taking on a family, taking on a job, taking on a role, whatever it is, that there's a commitment there and a responsibility there to cover it. That it's within your you know, responsibility at work, right? A good leader says when something goes wrong, even if someone else did it, if it's under your watch, you take responsibility for it. That the father, that God is over everyone, that the father's over a family, uh, the uh, husband's over a wife, the father's over the kids. That as my kids come up, it's my responsibility to cover them from the things of the world and, and carry them and get them through. And it's a big deal. And Boaz was willing to do this for her. Remember, Boaz was talking to someone at the first service and they brought it up because they were thinking about it. That Man, uh, did I mention that Boaz, who's Boaz's mom was? Rahab, right? That Boaz knows a little bit what it's like to be an outsider and come into the uh, Israelite family. That was his mom. And he was half Jerichoitis and half Jew. And so I think he could relate a little bit to her. He could understand her. And is that not the Lord who understands that we're but dust and knows what we're made of? But as he went back to sleep, as I'm sure he was like, yeah, great, sure, I'll do it for you. And goes back to sleep. Do you think she lays there? Do you think she falls asleep right away? Is her mind racing? What's going to happen? What's going to happen in the morning? Is he going to remember? Do you think she prayed? I think she prayed. I think she trusted. I think she went to sleep with the first night of good rest in a long time, and yet probably excited as well. Why? Because 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Let's go on and let's close out in the last few verses here. It says in verse 14, So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that... That the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother in law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty handed to your mother in law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And don't worry, I'm going to conclude this matter today. But she says, uh, he says, do not let it be known that Boaz wanted to talk with the other redeemer first. I don't think he was trying to cover up that she was there, that something improper had happened. I think he just wanted to do the honorable thing and make sure that it didn't get through the grapevine to this other guy, that he was the one that was able to go and ask and ask permission. Uh, I can remember my brother asking permission from my sister-in-law over the phone. I can remember not asking for my wife because we were so excited. Then we went to her house and woke her parents up, and thankfully he didn't kill me. But they blessed the marriage, and they were kind of playing matchmaker to begin with. But sincerely, he wanted to do things in the right way and in the right order. And so he blessed her with more barley. And again, I love the commentary. He says, not having any chocolates, he gave her six handfuls of grain. I say that's way more romantic than anything I've ever done for my wife. But she goes home and she has more food. She's got something to make breakfast and meals for the day. 
You know, I think in some way maybe he's saying, like, here's enough for today, right? Here's your daily bread. I'm going to be back later today or tomorrow. You don't need to worry about gleaning. This will get you until, get you through until I come for you. And again, is that not the Lord and us giving us our daily bread, giving us enough to get by, and we don't need to worry about tomorrow? So it, there's a note, too, that the ephahs is probably incorrect. There's no way she had 33 gallons. You know, maybe she had a wheelbarrow, but I don't think so. So it's still early and dark, and Naomi asked her when she came in, was Naomi up all night, sitting in her little rocking chair, waiting for little Ruth to come home? I don't know. But she told her everything that happened. Can you just picture that conversation? Can you picture the mother-in-law and Ruth and the joy of love and marriage and all these things that are going to happen potentially? And what's going to happen? What's going to happen, Mom? And I, Ash tells this story, and I love when she tells it to me, and I want her to tell it to me all the time. But she says, before we dated, she was in the kitchen with her mom, and she goes, Mom, I think I like Tim. I'm like, tell me that story again. That was a good story. But Naomi says to her, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. That this was an exciting time, but the time for Ruth to act was over. She went out the night before. She did what she did. Now it's in Boaz's hands. She can't meddle. She can't push as much as she wants to go. Pick out the centerpieces. Get the colors ready. Figure out what, where she's going to live and what she's going to do. It wasn't time for that. It was time to wait. Sit and let the Redeemer go about and do his redeeming work. That if she got involved at this point, it might have just messed things up. And when God tells us to wait, the minute we get involved, it messes it up. And, well, ask me how I know. Because when God told me to wait, I've messed things up. John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. So when God says to wait, we must wait. It's not a punishment. He's not trying to be mean. He's just trying to get things ready and make things perfect for you when it's time. And she says, the man will not rest until the matter is settled. She knew that Boaz was a good guy, that he wasn't just saying things, that he was going to get up, and when he got up in the morning, it was going to be the first thing he did was figure this out. And a righteous man will do whatever it takes and won't wait. Why? Well, God never sleeps or slumbers. So when God tells us to wait, he's not sitting on the couch. He's not forgetting about you. He's busy doing his father's work for you. And unfortunately for us, the longer we wait to do the right thing, at least for me, the more excuses I come up with, right? So that's why it's good to be obedient and to be obedient right away. Uh, And that's what we see here. So next week, I'm excited. We're going to see how it turns out with Boaz and what happens with them. That he's the redeemer. And I want you to know that if you need that redemption this morning, if you've been struggling with something, you've been a believer 35 years. God is still your redeemer. God still cares about the day-to-day. He doesn't go, well, you had 35 years to figure this out. You're on your own now. No, it's the same as always. He wants us to come to his feet and ask him to help us, to provide for us, to give us that peace, to give us that rest, whatever it is, to fix our marriage, fix our job, fix our life. If you were on the right path and you got off it, God can get you back on that right path. Why? Because that's what he does. He is our redeemer. He can buy back those things that we have no way to pay for. We have no way to, to get back, even if we could. 
So as Ben comes up to lead us in a last song of worship, I, I want you to encourage you to come to Jesus. Come to his feet. And think of this verse of what Jesus says to all of us. Matthew 11, 20-30. He says this to believers and unbelievers alike. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That God wants rest for you at his feet. So let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, for these stories. These people had no idea what was going on. They were just living life, trying to trust you, going through day by day and do the right thing. And yet, God, you used it mightily to bring about your son, Jesus, and to ultimately bring us into the kingdom. That all this work was done because we can't do anything to earn our salvation. So, God, this morning as we worship, God, as we have this last song, let us come to you. Let us lay our burdens at your feet. And let us let you do the work that only you can do. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's a great lyric that that is who he is. He is our Redeemer. He doesn't just do it for us. It's part of who he is. And so I'm going to pray for you guys one last time. But I encourage you, after service, talk to someone. If you need prayer, ask for prayer. Be genuine. Be open. Be vulnerable. Ask someone in the leadership, whatever it is, whether you don't know the Lord and want to come to know him or need to know more or whether you're just going through something, this is the time for that. So God, thank you so much that that is who you are. God, that you are our redeemer. It's not a burden for you. It's not a struggle for you. It's just an embodiment of who you are, Jesus. And we thank you for that, God. I pray that this morning for everything in this room, for marriages, for jobs, for lives, for moral failings, for struggles, for whatever it is that's going on, I pray, God, that you would redeem it. You already did at the cross. The work is done. The blood has covered it. God, you've cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered no more. So God, uh, for anyone who needs you this morning, we all need you, God. May we come to you and may they hear your voice and uh, have their prayer answered. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. If you're new, uh, make sure you meet someone. There's a welcome card out there. If uh, you're looking to serve, there's some stuff out there too. So have a good day and enjoy the rest of the afternoon as chilly as it is. There is a vineyard of the Lord, there is a vineyard for us soul. with all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light of